Hello and welcome to episode number 24 of the Slow Home Podcast. I'm your host, Brooke McCallery, and I am sitting on my lounge next to my co-host, Ben McCallery. Hi all. How are you? Very well. Good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Good, uh, a good episode this week, episode number 24 with uh, Bill Powers. Yeah, actually, Bill was a really interesting guest. Uh, I really enjoyed enjoyed kind of getting to know his story a little bit. He's just written a uh, released a book at the end of last year called New Slow City, where he and his wife uh, moved to the inner, you know, urban jungle of Manhattan and try and live a slow city life really interesting because he's he's previously lived he's done like the Thoreau Walden Pond kind of existence where he lived in a 12 by 12 cabin in um, one of the Carolinas for a year and wrote a book about that and then this is the exact opposite basically trying to live a you know a slow simple intentional kind of life in the busiest city in the world it's really really interesting we couldn't do it no because that's essentially one of the reasons why we left the city and moved out here. Oh, look, I think I actually think that we could do it. I mean, it's it's all about where you also want to live, and you know, choice is a big part of it. Um, he, you know, talks a bit about his their reasons for for not moving to the country when they looked to slow down, but rather to move to the city. And and some of it was circumstantial; they couldn't they couldn't avoid living there. Um, but you know, I think if we had to, we we would. And I think after talking to Bill as well, there's certainly things that we could do differently to how we we did before. Um, you know, by kind of using what's available, like in public property and facilities and that kind of stuff, to to expand your living space to include the entire city. Um, but you know, I'm also not super city girl either. Yeah, you're right. Circumstances, choices, they all play a pretty big factor. It's just interesting because it, um, it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't sound like it's the most natural thing to do, living slowly in a, in a big city. No, but it's actually something that I'm asked about a lot. People do ask me a lot, like, how, how do I, you know, either people, they like living in the city or they like living in the, you know, urban areas, uh, but they also want to live a, a slower simpler life how do you make the two work um and i mean obviously bill has some really good insight into that but the other person who i've interviewed before uh carl honore talks about a lot he's he's like a self-confessed speed freak he loves playing fast paced sports and he loves living in the middle of london but he still lives a slow life and it's absolutely possible and i think sometimes that it's it's going to benefit people the most if you're living in a fast-paced environment to actually slow down and learn to you know to to opt out of some of the things that are the craziest side of city living all very true now um a word from the uh our producer uh, engineer extraordinaire benjamin um the sound quality in this one is not too crash hot because of um well um the interview one side of the interview was being taken place in Bolivia, and the other one in Australia. So there was a little bit of work that needed to be done to this episode. So apologies if it's not as 
polished as as um, as normal. But um, William's written a book, or Bill has written a book. He has, yeah, he's written several. But uh, I just wanted to to you know send you guys over to visit him. Um, he's written a few books, but he's also a really interesting guy who's worked in urban sustainability and things like that. Uh, so if you wanted to learn more about Bill, just head to williampowersbooks.com and you can um, buy any of his books from there and also learn a lot more about him, find him on social media and that kind of thing. And um, similarly, if you wanted to get show notes for today's episode as well, just head to slowyourhome.com slash 24. Now, like always, this episode has been sponsored by audible.com where you can where you can listen to over 180,000 audiobooks and you can get a free trial, a 30-day, well, let's call it a month, uh, free trial by um, typing in audibletrial.com slash slow. Thank you for that one. (laughs) Um, This week I'm going to um, recommend something that I've just started listening to. And that's Aziz Ansari's uh, book, which is called... Modern Romance. And I reckon he's a really funny fella. He's from the Human Giant Guys, uh, or Giant Human Guys. Human Giant Guys, I think they're called. Um, Really, really funny guys. Um, And um, it's called Modern Romance, an investigation. So it's a a little bit about, about a love story. In the modern age. Indeed. Awesome. All right. Is there any other housekeeping that you've got before we get into it? Actually, I did want to just mention that um, myself and Sabelle Masterman, who's a guest from um, a previous episode of the show, maybe episode four or five, I think. We, Which is still one of the most um, listened to episodes. That's true. It is. We are putting on some in-person workshops, some slow living workshops around Australia in the next couple of months. So, uh, if I mean, at the moment where we're going to go with uh, an event in Brisbane, one in Melbourne, and one in Canberra before the end of the year. So, uh, as we add dates and information about those events and also ticketing information, you can find out more at uh, slowyourhome.com/events. Or just go to theslowroad.co and you will find uh, all the information there about our workshops. We're keeping them pretty small, so if you are interested in in heading to one of the events, I'd probably suggest grabbing a ticket without too much delay. But uh, we've we've run one in Sydney. We did that a couple of months ago. It was just really wonderful, actually, to to connect with people who were looking to make the same changes that we've made and, you know, prioritise their lives in a way that makes sense to them rather than than way you know than the way that they've been told to prioritize their life and it was a really you know and I say this is the person who was running the thing it was just really uplifting to to be able to talk to people who were so like-minded and to discover that not everybody was you know rushing to keep up with the joneses and you know nor do they want to so it was it's really cool. So if you get an opportunity or if you would like to come and hang out with us for a, for a day, we usually do tea and bickies and, you know, um, yeah. So check out the uh, the events page. I think also it might be really worthwhile getting Sabelle on the show again to talk about the feedback because obviously there's a lot of stuff that comes out of 
those events and workshops. So that might be another episode for uh, down the track. But without further ado, enjoy the show. Enjoy the show. joining me. Hi Brooke, it's wonderful to be here with you. It's um, first time talking to a guest in Bolivia, so uh, it's, um, yeah, I can add that to the to the list of people that I'm talking to in other countries. Now, um, you've recently published a, a, a new book called New Slow City, uh, which is all about trying to live a slow life in, in one of the fastest paced places on earth, New York. And I'm asked a lot about how we can introduce the idea of slow living to um, to, to city life. And because I'm kind of living a, a suburban life, you know, I, I'm in between city and country. And I know that listeners are going to want to hear all about your experiences and your advice. But before we jump into that, I just, I always like to go back and see where this all began for you. I mean, have you always been interested in slow living or was there a, a catalyst, a crisis, a realization that brought you brought you to it. Well, actually, I've not always been living the slow life. In fact, for a while there, I was quite a workaholic, you might say. Um, living in New York City, of course, you know, maybe one of the fastest cities on the planet. And my wife and I, um, you know, she was working kind of high power job at the UN. And myself as a consultant and writer and speaker around the country. And it just got to a point where we realized that it wasn't sustainable for our health, for our well-being, for a relationship. Um, it even got so bad that we took separate honeymoons. Um, myself in Paris by myself and her in the Dominican Republic alone um, because we couldn't coordinate a honeymoon together. So that's a new trend called unimoons. I don't recommend it, by the way. It's not <laughs> very pleasant. Um, but so I think it was after the Unimoon, really, that I realized that we couldn't go on this way. And, you know, um, not that I've always had that kind of a high-paced life. You know, I've definitely had lots of what I call creativity sabbaticals throughout life where you take a couple of months off from the work pace to, you know, slow down. Um, but just for a few years there, it got to be kind of into the American and Western, you know, ethos of, you know, time is money and you have to stay ahead of everyone else and, or else you're going to you know, lose out and this kind of scarcity mentality. Mm. And sort of that's where you, you, you came to live your slow year, I guess, which is the basis for New Slow City, um, where essentially you guys – decided to live a, a slower, drastically slower than average life while living in New York City. So what made you want to stay in the city uh, and slow down rather than move out of the city and live a slower life in a slower paced place? Was it um, work pressures, like work, work um, commitments or just the fact that you love city living? Well, we certainly do like city living and there's a lot to like about New York. You know, it's a um, beautiful city. Um, with two big rivers flowing through it. The ocean is right nearby, um, you know, and just all the cultural events and just the the stimulus. But the main reason, you know, was that she was offered a promotion at the UN um, to an even better job with the corner office and the whole thing. And although my work as a writer 
um, is flexible. Hers wasn't at that point. So even though we were at that point planning to decamp for um, something more rural and community-based and so on, we realized that, you know, in the context of a dual career couple, you have to make compromises sometimes and the compromise would be had to stay in the city. So um, we moved from our large townhouse, I mean, you know, 1900 square feet um, to something one fifth that size in Manhattan. Now, you know, Queens, of course, is a our outer borough of New York. We moved right to the center of the action in Greenwich Village, but in this tiny micro apartment. So by um, scaling back space that you're renting the square footage of course that's less expensive but also you have to like buy less stuff to fill it you know and then uh, it does free up a lot of your time so we actually um got rid of 80 percent of our belongings when we made that move and and tried to live a sort of more minimalist joyful and time-rich life in the middle of the city i think it's really interesting that most people kind of equate slow living and minimalism. I don't, I don't think they necessarily have to be, um, one and the same thing, but there's definitely a power, isn't there to, uh, you know, to living with less and opting to live with less because I think it frees up not only space, but headspace. I mean, I, I went through a similar kind of purge a few years ago where we, we got rid of more than 50% of our belongings and you don't realize how heavy that stuff is until you don't have to carry it anymore. Uh, did you find that there was a freedom in, in you know, letting go of that 80% of your belongings? Absolutely. Just to have our apartments, this tiny apartment, which was, by the way, just like, you know, two 12 by 12 cabins. In the, like I used to live in a 12 by 12 cabin for a season in North Carolina and for my book 12 by 12. Um, it, you know, so basically we were living in like the equivalent of two of those cabins in the middle of the city. And, and so, of course, we had to organize it like almost like you'd organize a ship, you know. Um, with everything in its place. So we figured out this perfect way of organizing things and there's no more clutter. And there's also no more like having to clean up really <laughs> because it's, it's such a small place that just goes in its, in its spot. So it definitely um, was very freeing. And I found that it just gave us the chance in this urban context to really, you know, have the city as our larger home and living room and, you know, playground and so on just getting out into washington square park or to my favorite pier pier um 56 on the hudson river you know central parks the ramble i mean these are all what i call urban sanctuaries which even in sydney or tokyo or whatever city you're in uh you can find those sanctuaries it can be you know just a church that you go into that's a quiet space um you know a special part of a park or along a piece place piece of water um a back section of a museum or a library. Like we love the uh, third floor of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Chinese decorative art section that no one even knows about or goes to. Um, I guess now they will if they've heard your podcast, but <laughs> you know, little spaces like that that are just these urban sanctuaries where you can be living this real busy, active life, but then it's balanced with these slow moments because you know as you know like the um, you know the founder of slow food said you know always going slow is stupid mm. you know what we're going for is a self-paced life where we can find the tempo gusto or the right pace and i've always loved the idea of the right pace because some people will you know will kind of feel defensive about the idea of slowing down because it 
you know, the way I slow down, for example, doesn't fit with the rhythm of their life. So it doesn't have to, you know, you find your rhythm, you find your pace, you find the place that is balanced between, you know, busy and activity and, and work and deadlines because that's life. And, you know, it's enjoyable sometimes to have time pressures on work or whatever it is. But then it's, it's when it's tempered by downtime, you know, and time where it's quiet and time where you find a sanctuary. And I think that's where um, it's really interesting that you talk about having, you know, the city as your, your greater living room because that then taps into the idea of a more a communal kind of living as well where we have shared spaces and shared uh, facilities and shared, you know, sanctuaries and parks and green spaces and things that, that kind of act as, um, you know, breathing space for a whole host of people. Did you find that you would come across the same people in those places, you know, people who were living similarly and, and kind of had the same... Um, you know, outward facing view of, of living? Well, I certainly did bump into a lot of the same people. Of course, it's a city with 10 million people and some 56 million tourists that come through here. So <laughs> yeah. a lot of new faces as well. Sure. But for example, in Washington Square Park, the famous park from the 1960s, um, you know, in the middle of Greenwich Village, you know, I got to know the members of the jam. It's a spontaneous music improvisation group led by this one guy, Scott. And there's this constant stream of amazing musicians that you can just hang out with, play something if you want, but even just to sit there for hours listening. You know, and they had an ethic of, one of them told me, you know, I work 24-7. I said, well, what does that mean, 24-7? I mean, you mean you work all the time? He said, no, I work 24 hours a week, seven months a year. <laughs> oh. wow. right, so, um, and then somebody else said to me that they pay themselves in time, not in money. So anyway, I got to meet these different cultural creatives on the edge of sort of slow living, even in the world's fastest city. And that's kind of where the idea of, of the book title, New Slow City, comes from. It's sort of a play on New York City, but it's the fact that, you know, the related trends of slow money, slow travel, slow food, all of them are coming together, I think, in these busy urban contexts. And the great thing about it is that when you're in a city, actually it's almost that much more pleasurable to live the slow life. Because of course, if you're in the rural area um, or a town or a suburb, it already is slow. Mm. But there's something about being counter cyclical or countercultural. It like, um, it nourishes you to be not going along with the prevailing rhythm, but to be creating your own. And there's a liberation, I guess, in that too. You know, you're seeing 99.9% of the population working in this this kind of cycle of get up, go to work, uh, you know, eat lunch at desk, come home at 8 o'clock at night, <laughs> eat dinner, watch TV, go to sleep. And that's it's kind of this constant, um, you know, merry-go-round. And to be able to, to operate outside of that, it's a liberating feeling, I, you know, I can, I can see. I, I mean, I feel like I feel that personally in a much smaller way because I guess I don't live in a in a city kind of area and it's not as high paced of course where I live but yeah to be able to just step off and say this is not the rhythm that fits me is yeah it's very liberating mm -hmm. absolutely it really is and you know there's something so delicious about sort of Monday mornings you know the dreaded like you know, I hate Mondays type of feeling where I would sleep in until nine on Mondays, just almost like intentionally on the wake up and read 
poetry and have my bagel and coffee down by the river and just ease into the day really slowly um, as everyone's scurrying by mm-hmm. off to offices. And, you know, it's totally possible that people would say, oh, that sounds like something that only the rich can do. Uh, not necessarily. You know, like I was saying, by sort of minimalizing possessions and expenses. And by the way, there's something like uh, 200 free things to do, do in New York every day, and we discovered a lot of those. Um, you know, um, you're able to start paying yourself in time instead of money. And and just really soaking that because, you know, like that uh, poem from I think it's Camus goes, you know, Time in the it's called the physics of happiness. Time in the open air, love for another being, freedom from ambition, creation. Hmm. Sort of one of my mottos from the slow year, you know, because um, you know, time in the open air, of course, that can be had in a city just as easily as in the country. Um, you know, love for another being. It means really connecting with your loved ones, your wife, your children, your partner, family, people around you, good friends. Um, not necessarily 10,000 friends on Facebook, but those quality relationships um, expand when you free up your time. Um, you know, freedom from ambition is probably the hardest one for all of us in this kind of Western mindset of uh, competitiveness. You know, but freedom from ambition doesn't mean that you're not successful or that you're not ambitious. It means that you're free from that ambition. It's not, you're not a slave to it, you know? Um, and then creation, the last part of the poem creation, you know, uh, do what you will, you know, um, find ways to create out of that space of peace. Um, maybe sometimes you'll be at a very fast rhythm and doing working up, working all night on something that you're excited about. Other times you'll just feel lazy and respect that laziness. You're now a self paced person instead of part of an industrial model, which wants to turn you into a little piece of the economy. So that's kind of the, the philosophy we were living. And I, I mean, I, I personally love it. Um, I think it's interesting you talk about freedom from ambition because I think that's something that people, people look at and they think that sounds really nice, but um, it, it's a matter of taking ego out of it, I think, in a certain to a certain extent too, um, particularly in kind of our, like the Western world, it's if you're not competing, if you're not um, striving, then, you know, you're not, you're not trying hard enough or you don't deserve success. And I think, um, I, I think that first of all, that's not the case at all, but um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see people grapple with that idea of, well, if I'm not, if I'm not working for more then what am I, you know, what am I working for? Mm-hmm. Right. But the other part of it is that, you know, your productivity peaks at a certain point. It's something like 37 hours a week of working, which is basically what I came. I started out working a, a two day work week at the beginning of and having five day weekends, which was wonderful, you know. But at a certain point, I realized that wasn't really sustainable either because I did have more work, interesting work things like coming into my life. So I sort of ended up as a four day work week you know, 32 hours a week and then three days off, um, as the sweet spot. And I felt very productive in that time. And I think that a lot of people who are very ambitious can realize, Oh, you know, actually I can be more productive. Studies show it using things like the 80, 20 principle, which I talk about in the book, you know, which is that you know, we achieve 80% of our results using 20% of 
the activities. Like, so 20% of what we're doing creates 80% of the results. And conversely, we kind of squander 80% of our time just achieving 20%. Mm. So if you kind of 80, 20, your work life, especially if you're a consultant and you're freelance and so on, then you have much more control. But even if you are working in a job, you can still do this and then have more time off. You figure out, okay, what are the activities I'm doing that are leveraging the most activity and just do those and then sort of like fire the clients who are in that other, you know, 80% that are wasting your time or, or eliminate those activities. Again, it's a kind of a minimalism or kind of a purging of, of your calendar. Um, that's, that, that's really powerful. You know, because in the other principle with, that we'd use in terms of your question about productivity and ambition and so on was the Hodgkinson's principle, which basically says that, you know, work expands to fill the amount of time you give it. So by combining 80-20 and then the Hodgkinson's and like giving yourself short deadlines, you just find yourself cranking it out in that short period of time, which I would do, like say for a magazine article or for a book chapter or some speech I was writing, I would just give myself a very short uh, time frame and then it would get done. I mean, I'm exactly, I'm exactly the same. I'll have something that, you know, is on my calendar for three months that I know that it needs to happen. And if I allow myself three months, it will take three months. If I allow myself one week or, you know, one day to, to get written, whatever I need to get written, it gets done, you know, um, within, within reason, of course. But, um, I just want to go back to something that you were talking about with, in terms of, uh, working smarter, um, and not necessarily harder. And I think there's, a lot of wisdom in that. What about people who are working in organizations that are not in the slightest bit receptive? You know, if they need to be a person who's in the office at eight and leaves at six and there's no kind of, um, you know, give, give or take there. And then also, you know, when we're expected to be connected all the time and that's what our colleagues are doing and that's what you know our bosses are doing and if we don't answer an email even if it happens to be sent at 11 o'clock on a friday night you know then that means that we've dropped dropped the ball um how can uh people you know affect these kind of changes personally when um you know the organization they work for or the you know the the work culture that they're in doesn't support it okay well there's two things that I would say to that. First of all, it's, you know, just to take a step back from that for a second and look at what that is. <laughs> you know, when did human beings become these little automatons or these little parts of a big machine and lose their freedom? You know, just to take a look at that. But, so you're going to go through your short, you know, 60, 70 years of life in that model of putting yourself into that little square peg where you're working 50 weeks a year and from eight to, to six every day. I mean, is that really what you want to do? You know, that, cause that'd be, but then, all right, to go more specifically into it, you know, um, if you have to be in a job, say from eight to six, you can apply the 80, 20 principle I was talking about and be more effective at what you were doing. And then use some of that time sitting in the office uh, to be doing other activities, <laughs> you know, we're all connected to uh, the web, and we can be doing our own uh, freelance work or passion projects or whatever on the side while you're still on the clock because you've done the work. Um, in the cases where that's not possible, you can have a longer-term plan about how to extract yourself from the work-and-spend treadmill, from this model of humans as parts of this industrial machine, by 
reskilling, you know, working on other skills, um, trying to create income streams out of your passions in small ways that will eventually flourish down the road. Um, through reading books like Your Money or Your Life by my friend Vicki Robin, which shows you how to um, eliminate kind of wasted expenditures and find a joy to stuff ratio that's appropriate, you know, where you're actually able to um, have more more income that's then working for you. You know, all of these things are longer term approaches. It's like, you know, um, it's sort of like retooling your philosophy around it. Now, and then your, your other question, which was about sort of smartphones and constant connectedness. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. That's another tough one. I, I hear that one a lot. And I know how it is being expected. But what I've found is that people respect boundaries that you set. Now, there may be some employers out there who are absolutely impossible and will never um, relate to you having to be on the the phone 24 hours a day, in which case you're going to want to have a six to 12 month plan to leave that job, I would say, (laughs) if you at all can. Um, But in the the majority of cases, you know, if you're able to set a tone that you're not always connected, and that's the message and people know when you're reachable, they begin to understand that that's, that's how it works. You know, so we've taken internet sabbaticals for, you know, five days when we're on a staycation in New York, um, just totally off our devices, even so far as taking the batteries out, you know, and putting them, hiding them somewhere else in the apartments. Um, and, you know, just, uh, we definitely respect Sundays as not using any screens. Um, and you find little ways to kind of like create this. Now what happens when you do that is this, you're not becoming a constant responsive person to other people's agendas. You're finding that more creativity. That's also like freedom from ambition, creation, like, so you're not part of that big ambitious machine. You're suddenly like in these spaces of, oh, this is me. This is my own free space where I can be creative. And even if you think you're not a creative person, we're all creative. Every single person is creative. And and you're gonna only find that through creating these these spaces. Yeah, I think I mean unplugging is just vastly underrated, but so completely necessary, I think, to to that inner peace. I mean, recently um, my family and I took a holiday and I was offline for two weeks, um, completely for 10 days, but uh, I did check my email on the 10th day. Um, But beyond that, I was offline, all social media, everything for two weeks. And it was just (laughs) the most phenomenally life-altering thing. And it's something that I had done before, but it just was a, an amazing reminder of how much headspace is taken up by this, how much time is taken up by, you know, the constant flicking between screens and, uh, you know, this, this busy work of checking our email inbox and, you know, feeling that kind of rush of, of some kind of chemical. There's a new notification and you just, you just don't realize how central that has become to, you know, our day-to-day lives until you stop. Right, exactly. I just recently had a similar experience. I had nine days offline a month ago when I was in the Bolivian Amazon and just this amazing feeling of reconnecting to the, the winds, the water, the people around you. Um, I felt I wrote a lot, feeling a lot of creative energies. It was my own voice coming in. All of these things are just super, super effective. And then when I went back online, I also felt good mm-hmm. in a way. Like it was just, okay, now I'm back. So it's, again, it's like creating those that balance. Um is so effective. It really is. And I think that that's a key thing. You know, you disconnect 
and you stop that constant input of, you know, some of it's important, but a lot of it isn't. And suddenly your creative voice and your creative kind of mind can, can reawaken in a way that it can't when there's constant input. And I, I was similar. I wrote a lot, you know, and, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing to see how your brain kind of rejigs itself in such a short period of time to start thinking creatively again. And, um, yeah, it's definitely something that I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot more of. Um, it was interesting to hear you talk about, uh, sorry. I was going to say like for the skeptics out there who are thinking, Oh yeah, that's great for writers. And it's great for, you know, if you want to be more meditative, but you know, I'm a busy person. I have a family and I mean, I have a family too. I've got two children, like, but you can still, it's, I think what the, the real issue is that there's a kind of crack or addictiveness to this 24 seven connectedness that, you know, speed releases the same chemicals that are released during sex, you know, and it's a, a very stimulating kind of a thing to be constantly under deadlines, under pressure and rushing. And um, so I think part of the reason why like a lot of people are not receptive to this message, if they're not already convinced and they've not already tasted it is because they are feeling some pretty interesting and strong feelings through the interconnectedness, you know, and the constant. Um, but I guess I would just encourage those folks, if they're listening, if they're still listening to this, <laughs> this far into the interview, um, which they probably may not be, but uh, for those that are, you know, give it a try, you know, spend, um, do some small things. Like if you read my book, for example, just take some of the, some of the ideas of urban sanctuaries or, you know, looking up into the sky sometimes or technology fasts or whatever, slow, you know, silent meals, um, whatever would appeal to you, just try it, you know, to like try a couple of things and la- allow some of that spaciousness to come into your life and just see if it opens up something new for you. I think the idea of experimenting is really, you know, powerful as well. You can just try things, you know, try things for a week or a day or a month. Um, you know, similarly with people who are kind of experimenting with minimalism or simple living, you don't necessarily have to throw everything away or give it all away, but try living a month without a TV or try living, you know, a month with only a handful of clothing items and have fun with it as well. You know, see what you can uncover and see what you can learn about yourself and the way you think and the way you work and the way you might be, you know, primed to work in a, in a better way or think in a better way if you try these, these kind of different experiments. So I was really interested to hear you talk before about, uh, you know, the uh, ways of extricating ourselves from this, you know, the eight till six, which used to be the nine till five, uh, you know, way of living by slowly building up you know, passion projects and things like that. I find it fascinating because so many people that I talk to in the minimalism, you know, area or people who have adopted slow or simple living, so many people end up doing that. You know, they, they remove a lot of the clutter mental and physical from their life. And that allows space for other things to, to blossom. It might be a business idea or a hobby, which becomes something that they, you know, um, you know, build upon, but it's really interesting to see that not only is that you know a byproduct of of living a simpler, slower life, but it's also a way out of the the, the kind of life that people might feel trapped in. Is that um, something that you see a lot of people who are 
you're transitioning out of the hectic kind of busy life into maybe a life of self-employment or or working in, in a, a different field that allows them the flexibility of you know shorter hours or or different kind of working environment absolutely i think almost you know the vast majority of people who are living into this new slow way of looking at the world through all the related movements um realize as krishnamurti put it that it's almost insane to think about working in a regular job. <laughs> now, that sounds very radical to say it. But I think what he was saying was that, you know, uh, once you develop this deeper consciousness of the preciousness of life and the moments, you no longer are willing to trade yourself into the marketplace in that way rather than agenda. I mean, the famous naturalist Henry David Thoreau uh, in Walden writes, you know, that he would never work a job using his mental abilities for money because that's his sacred space, his thinking, you know, and his, his creativity and so on is not for sale at any price. So he'll do manual label work with his hands, but then he'll sit on the stoop of his tiny house for hours and hours and reflect and contemplate and, and so on. So, you know, and that sort of relates to this, what is this bigger movement that I'm talking about? I mean, it's not just slow food and slow money. It's what I call the irresistible revolution. It's because once you start to enter into this other way of living, which includes embracing time richness, um, it includes the sensual part of existence and rediscovering your body and your senses that like Dave Abram talks about in Spell of the Sensuous or Charles Eisenstein in his book, um, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, his new book, which I love, um, you know, allowing um, community to form, not in the way that we think community is. And everyone says, oh, I want more community in my life. But community is, it comes out of mutual necessity. And I think the transition town movements, you know, which we're a part of, um, which is in 1600 streets, transition streets and towns around the world in 40 countries is another way of like rediscovering that like visceral interconnection through economy, through culture, through, you know, garden, like shared gardens, um, work parties and so on. Um, you know, all of this comes together. And the reason why it's irresistible is because once you start to like put the pieces together in the kind of spiritual quote unquote, spiritual parts of this new thinking, the more environmental and ecological parts, the more, uh, you know, time richness and take back your time parts of it and the more creative uh, cultural creative side of it, put those all together. And it just adds up to something that is so much more attractive than the status quo kind of business unusual work and spend treadmill. But it takes a big jump to get to that point because it takes like sort of opening up to these new ideas, reading these things, watching the kind of films that nourish it joining transition town movements or simplicity circles or other ways that you're finding community around it, finding this like kind of new tribe. But then once you're into it, it's almost impossible to think about going back into the traditional model. So I think we live such separate lives, you know, in Western culture, we, we kind of stay inside our four walls and where there's a, a definite element of fear in terms of you know engaging with people in our wider community I mean, community is something that people 
they know they want, but they don't necessarily know how to kind of open up to embrace it. And I think what you're talking about is, uh, you know, a, a, yeah, a community of necessity and a community of shared needs and um, shared you know, facilities and things like that. Uh, can you talk to me a bit about the transition towns idea? Right. So, um, part of our like part of our fam- my family's path has been you know after living in New York City um, for many years, and that's where I'm from. Um, we decided once we finished our slow year <laughs> to you know experiment by revillaging. You know, going we live in a um, a village in Bolivia, this town I mentioned, Samaipata where the Andes meets the Amazon, it's 4,000 people. And it's a transition town, which basically means that we're one of these 1,600 communities that's growing every day that are looking at sourcing all of our own energy. Um, you know, we're producing all organic food on a household level and exchanging, but also working towards getting our municipality 100% organic. Um, you know, there's childcare cooperatives, there's mingas, which are like group work parties. We've, we've planted our fruit orchard all through a minga um, and, and so on. So, you know, we're, we're very involved politically in local economy as all the transition towns are. And um, you can go to their, their website and check it out and see how you can set one up in cities. You know, in New York, there's a lot of transition streets, which is the same thing, but forming much more community and political empowerment around, streets or, or parts of neighborhoods. That just sounds like absolute paradise to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it is. It kind of in some ways is because what I've started to realize, and I'm writing about this a lot now, and, you know, is just that um, in a world of homogenization, right, a MIC world, a one world uniplanet, whatever you want to call it, this kind of globalization model where everything's the same or going towards uniformity, there's such power in texture or hybrid cultures like, for example, this transition town, Samipata, is a mix. I mean, there's people from all over Bolivia here. Like, it's mixed, like, Inca descendants, the Quechuas, Aymaras, um, Bayunos from this area, Chane. And then there's people from about 30 countries here, too, in this small town. So it's like, um, like together, we're revillaging as the trend goes towards urbanization, right? Going, emptying out the villages to the big cities going in the opposite direction in a way like sort of empowers the local economy and suddenly energizes it. And with internet and so on, all of us here, like there's a lot of educated people here from different European countries, from Australia. Like just today I had lunch with some Australian friends at our house here. Um, You know, we're all sort of in a way creating a new world through this, the beauty of the small, you know, because it's revolutionary territory in a world of bigness and scale to find, you know, the still, the small, the peaceful and feeling that, that true community. What do you think would happen if everybody in New York city, for example, decided tomorrow that they were going to slow down and work 35 hours a week, live with less, want less, you know, have a desire for less stuff and more experience, more richness. What do you think would happen both in terms of how people, how how people would feel and how they would experience life, but also what would happen to the city, you know, the vibrancy of the city and this, this kind of hectic all hours, um, you know, vibe of New York and then also the economy, you know, do you think 
Yeah, but well, I mean, it's a, obviously it's not going to happen. But I'd be fascinated to know what you think. Yeah, I mean, even in Silicon Valley, you know, the the big talk now is about the and there's policies forming around this, um, sort of like a guaranteed minimum payment each month to every citizen of the U.S. Why? Um, because as technology increases, I mean, you know, the idea was always time-saving devices, right? We've always heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the devices have never saved us time. Well, guess what? Now they are. I mean, I think that really we're getting into a, a world where if you look at like almost every factory in the U.S., it's almost 100% automated now. And increasingly, even simpler jobs are being able to be done by machines or by programs. Like, So what that does is it, if we capture that benefit, like, so it's going to create unemployment, of course, over time. But it's the same amount of productivity or more. So by having this sort of guaranteed payment each month, it just allows people to pursue their creative ideas if they're a piano player or if they love to garden or whatever a lot more, and they still have the income. Um, but but see, that, that takes an entirely new way of looking at the world because most people wouldn't even want to do that. We're so addicted to the work itself that even if you gave you the, the money, would you slow down? Um, so I guess like, you know, that's a roundabout way of saying that like this new economy we're getting into, we have the opportunity to really finally reap the results of this time-saving um, technology. And if we can only change our philosophy and realize that life is about, you know, leisure. It, it is. And it's a fascinating question to think what we would do if we were given that, you know, that on a, on a platter, because I, I do think some people, or many, many people, most people are, they don't know any other way. So it would be it would be amazing to to kind of ask the question if you could what would you do you know if you could do anything what would you do with your time and um, I think a lot of people would be afraid of boredom I guess which is again you know an opportunity to unlock the creative brain or the you know the the things that people are passionate about and they haven't never had a chance to explore it would yeah it would just be fascinating to see if you know you kind of gave somebody a month and put them in this situation where they didn't have to need to worry about their, their essentials. They were covered for food. They were covered for, you know, accommodation, but what would you do? It's um, yeah, it would be really interesting. That's a great question. You know, it's a great question for any, anyone to think about what would, what would you do if you could do whatever your heart desired, you know? Yeah. And I think that would be a process of really, you know, it would be a, a six month, a year, two year process of like, sort of coming back into your true self as a free creature. Because, you know, in a way, we're we're animals like any other animal. Look out the window, you know, of a city. You see these other animals out there. They're not organized into these highly structured societies where they're, you know, all these rules and regulations and expectations. Like, they kind of are natural creatures, and that's what we are at heart. And it's, in some ways, capturing a little more of that spirit, you know, and... and Freeing yourself from wage slavery, you know, um, either through these new policies that are going to come about that will just send you a check in the mail, or even before that happens, just right now, you can start to plant those seeds for other types of income streams, um, minimizing ex- expenses and maximizing investments, freeing yourself from it. Um, it's like those slow steps that'll wake you up to like your true self because a lot of the mental illness issues and health issues and stress being the number one problem is, is tied to this. It's like, we love it. We, we love all of this speed and like just 
constant diversion. I mean, you can constantly be stimulated by the influx of new YouTube videos and cool films and just amazing things to do all the time. But, um, and, and all work projects and that, Oh wow, I can get this promotion record. But when you step out of that, there's this whole other world that's to me just so much more nourishing. I think, um, it's easy in today's, you know, everything on tap kind of culture to not have to think those, those thoughts and not have to ask ourselves the questions that may, ne- may not necessarily give us answers that we're comfortable with. And I think, you know, we keep cramming stuff in on top of other things to, to not have to deal with the fact that we are stressed out of our brains or we are, you know, running our health into the ground. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've been guilty of it before myself as well. You, you put more input in so you don't have to think about these things that are bothering you. And it's not until you just allow yourself to feel it and experience it and think on it and, you know, meditate on it. And it takes years, you know, it's a, an iterative process that, that I don't think there's necessarily going to be like a perfect end destination because you, you discover things about yourself as you go along and as you simplify and you peel back the layers and you, you know, let go of past issues and stresses. It's sure. Um, right. Yeah. It's like, um, the spiritual teacher Gurdjieff said, you know, um, we need many alarm clocks, you know, because we habituate, to a certain alarm clock and we just sleep through it. So we have to always have new alarm clocks and more of them, <laughs> you know? So maybe this conversation even today, Brooke is like one of those alarm clocks and maybe there'll be many others um, that a person takes, but it's that iterative process, as you say, of just continuing to wake yourself up. Yes, exactly. Uh, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much. Um, now, People, you've you've written a few books, but um, your most recent one is New Slow City, and then the previous one before that was Twelve by Twelve. Is that right? That's right. Okay, and people can find them on Amazon and um, online. I know you've got a website that I'll um, I'll point everybody to in the show notes as well. But um, do you do social media or anything like that? Yes, I've actually. I'm not a big social media person, like just post everything. <laughs> but I do have a Facebook page. Um, you know, William Powers books and, um, you know, a website with, uh, some videos on some of this stuff, including a little trailer about the book that's williampowersbooks.com. And yeah, I'm happy always to interact with people by email or Facebook. Fabulous. Well, thank you again for, um, for chatting with me. It's been a, a really great conversation for me as well. I've really enjoyed it, Brooke. Excellent. Thank you. been another episode of the slow home podcast if you enjoyed it be sure to subscribe via itunes leave us a rating or a review thanks for listening